you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're gonna need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi everyone, welcome to the Well Endowed podcast brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation and a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Here is where we bring you community discourse about the amazing organizations and people who come together to help make Edmonton strong. Every month we share stories from the spaces where endowments and community intersect. I'm Andrew Paul, and joining me today is our special guest host, Charlene Clark. That's right. I'm filling in for Elizabeth while she's away. Yeah, so could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So uh, I am a former publishing professional who just came to work at Edmonton Community Foundation uh, seven months ago. So I'm a member of the donor services team here at ECF, and uh, yeah, so I'm directly helping donors, processing donations, issuing acknowledgments, and super happy to be here. Oh yeah, it's great to have you here. How, how are you settling into the uh, sort of career change from publishing into uh, philanthropy? Uh, so far, it's really great, and I mean, it's it's just so inspiring to come to work every day and see the changes happening in the community and how the citizens of our area are just really coming together to engage in philanthropy and making a difference. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely no shortage of stories for us to be telling on the podcast, which is why this month uh, we're actually doing three episodes. Usually we do monthly, but there's been so much going on at the foundation that uh, we're just having a big old episode bonanza this month. (laughs) So uh, we should probably get into it. Some of those stories that we're going to hear later this month include Data for Good's upcoming Datathon, which is really exciting this year. They're focusing their Datathon on the arts sector, I believe. So that's going to be a lot of fun to see what comes out of that. Uh, we'll also be chatting with Procoro Choir about an endowment fund that they've opened up and named in honor of a couple of very stalwart board and volunteer members. And Lisa will be chatting with uh, an author and broadcaster, Trevor Phillips, uh, who's coming in as part of the Edmonton Shift Lab speaker series uh, that is all focusing on having difficult conversations around race. But we have some stories on this episode that we're going to get to first. What do we have lined up, Charlene? Okay, so for today's show, we talked to Jane Bisbee about the Social Enterprise Fund and how they've achieved 10 years of community impact. But first, Lewis Cardinal joins us to discuss the talk he'll be giving on November 16th as part of the Norquest College's Circle of Knowledge Indigenous Speaker Series. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Lewis Cardinal is a communicator and educator who has dedicated his life's work to creating relationships that cross cultural divides. His track record of public service includes being a founding board member of Alberta Aboriginal Arts, co-chair of the Aboriginal Commission for Human Rights and Justice, and trustee of the Council for Parliament of World Religions, and that's just to mention a few. He's also received Queen Elizabeth II's Diamond Jubilee Medal for Public Service and the Inspire Award for Public Service, which is the highest award given to an Indigenous person by Indigenous people in Canada. And believe me when I say that those accolades are just the tip of the iceberg. But as impressive as Lewis's career is, he is just one of a long line of community builders in his family. I sat down with Lewis to chat about his family's extensive legacy as treaty builders, how he fits into that history, and how his children are poised to carry the torch into the future. So let's go to that now. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast, Lewis. We are here to talk about uh, your speaking engagement as part of NorQuest's Circle of Knowledge Indigenous Speaker Series on November 16th. And we're hoping that we could start with you giving us a little bit of a rundown about what you'll be covering during your talk. Oh, well, you know, when I was asked to speak, um, I asked, well, what do you want me to speak about, right? 
and and Connor said, well, you know, you have a long history of uh, of working in, in advocacy for indigenous people, and uh, and and some of your relatives, from what he knew, uh, were involved in the indigenous movement back in the day and everything, and so um, so that really was. This is going to be the first time that I've actually spoken about it in terms of the 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 depth and the uh, connectedness that I do have to some fairly prominent uh, leaders in, in Western Canada since oh since before Canada was Canada actually right. which is, is exciting so um, starting out uh, I want to talk about the um, about the, the previous leaders in my life. So I have to go back and say, well, where did this all start? I mean, you know, uh, why is it that, that my family and, and the work that I've done has consistently been around supporting the community, supporting the nation in, um, in, in becoming healthy and, uh, and balanced and mm-hmm. uh, doing the good things? So I started digging into uh, my family history, starting out with uh, the remembrances of what my father told me of various relatives that we had. But doing a genealogy uh, research really opened up to some amazing stories of things. And I can, um, uh, you know, I can trace back through the Cunningham side of my family, which is my grandmother. She, w- she was born um, at Lexington, not too far from here, mm-hmm. and then moved to... Um, St. Albert, and then up into uh, the Peavine Colony in the 30s, the early 30s. But that led me on a really interesting search in terms of the Cunningham family, where that goes, because they are really Métis, very strong, prominent Métis family in Western Canada, historical family. I was able to follow the progenitor of this uh, Métis family to Patrick Cunningham, uh, which came here in 1812 from County Sligo, Ireland. Okay. And he came uh, with uh, Selkirk and his uh, idea of populating the, the, the New West, which was Manitoba at the time, or what is now Manitoba. It didn't have a name back then. He landed at, um, in 1812, he landed at uh, Fort York. Okay. And, uh, and then made his way with uh, 31 other settlers to be the first group of settlers to settle the Red River Settlement. Okay, that's in 1812, right at the beginning of the Right year. at the very beginning, and then he uh, he then married into a large Métis family, which were by the name of Bruce, Benjamin Bruce, and his wife, who was a Cree woman named Mathilda, uh, and then he married their daughter, uh, Nancy Ann Bruce. And so then they had a bunch of kids. <laughs> right. And so the long history of that is that all of their kids and their descendants worked in all of the forts from, from uh, Fort Garry. Um, in Winnipeg all the way through right up to Fort Edmonton until it was closed in 19, you know, what was it, 1915, 1912, 1915, or something like that. So that's the Métis side, right? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, though, is that within that family, uh, they were involved in the formation of Manitoba, sitting in the first organized governments in Saskatchewan. Uh, here in the Northwest Territories, the very first organized government in 1880, um, my, uh, my grandmother's grandfather was Samuel Cunningham, and he was uh, elected to that position to represent, uh, you know, St. Albert region and this region of, of, of the country at the time. And then he went off and he did some amazing things. And, yeah, I could spend a long time just on him. But anyway, make long story short, he also was involved in the treaty-making process as an interpreter for the government and the commissioners. So then that leads into my Métis side, uh, to my First Nation side, so... Yeah. Okay. Uh, what were what were some of the treaties that he was working on as an interpreter? Uh, treaty eight. Okay. So that's yeah, like, treaty eight was the the big one for him. Yeah, and that's uh, just north of us here. That's right, and that's where I come from. I come from the Sucker Creek Cree First Nation, and we're in treaty eight. I'm a direct descendant of uh, Mustos and Canusio, who made the uh, treaty number eight 
uh, and their brothers as well who made who made treaty number eight so uh, so on one side of the uh, of the negotiations was my you know my third great grandfather and my third great great uncle and then on the other side was my uh, third great grandfather <laughs> Samuel Cunningham you know and so through that I, I've got interesting uh, interpretations and stories of, of that treaty making process at that time yeah, absolutely. Uh, when did you start getting into genealogy? Was this sort of a passion as a, a youth or something that you got into a little bit later? Down the well, road? it was always something that I found to be very interesting, listening to stories of my grandmother talking about her ancestors, listening to uh, uh, my father talk about uh, a lot of our relatives that, that I didn't know. So it was really kind of like a more of a family tradition from my grandmother to my father and then to me. I always found that to be fascinating because... In so many ways, it, it helps you to make sense of who you are, mm -hmm. and it also connects you to a long line of people, right? So you're not just this, you know, magically created person with no connection to anything. You're actually in the front line. You're in the front of a very long line uh, of people. So through that genealogy, I found that uh, Michelle Callahue down here in Treaty 6, he's the signatory to Treaty 6. He was my, uh, th also my, no, he was my fourth great-grandfather. Okay. And he took a First Nation called Michelle's, Michelle's Band, is what it's commonly known as, uh, which was lost subsequently under, you know, uh, mysterious conditions, nonetheless. Okay. And then Papa's Chase was my fourth great uncle. You're right. And so he was the uncle to uh, Mustus, who, who was the, the spiritual leader at the time of the, the Cree and who made Treaty 8. So okay. Papa's Chase, as we all know, is, you know, southern Edmonton pretty yeah, much. Yes, right. right. Yeah. So they, they're very prominent that way. Yeah. Uh, so your family has a very long history of uh, building relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous uh, communities. Yeah. Uh, and you yourself have uh, done a lot of work in that field yeah. uh, as well. Uh, how does it feel personally for you to sort of be continuing this uh, type of work with your generation and uh, passing uh, that down to your children? Well, I find that my grandmother and my father's mother and my grandfather, uh, Frank Cardinal, who was the chief of our First Nation for a long time, uh, they taught me at a very young age a very simple lesson. And I remember my grandmother kneeling down and, and talking to me, and she's saying, you know, she said, when you become a man and you become successful, she said, don't forget the people who are having a hard time. Once you have been able to uh, sub uh, provide for your own family, then turn and help those others who need help. That was, that was really the foundation of it. And um, my father also uh, iterated that as well. Looking after the people was an obligation uh, that was really tied into our cultural traditions as men, period. Right. You know, you always make sure that you provide, protect, and also nurture, right, the community that you come from, particularly your family, and then your, your broader community, and then the nation, right? So that's been really something that's been really hardwired, even genetically, I would say, into, into, into my family. So it became very natural. And my grandfather, he told me when I was a teenager, we were talking about this very same subject. He said, when you become an Indian, he said, you'll never be out of work. He said, all these young people around here are saying they're out of work, out of work. But he said, when you become an Indian, that means when you ground yourself in your indigeneity, okay. when you understand your role as an indigenous man, you know what needs to be done and go and you do it. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I uh, that's what I've done looking around here in Edmonton I saw you know that we need to do some work because there's a lot of people here who who need a hand up and um, and we have history and culture here that's being ignored 
And it's a real gift once we tap into those things for the rest of Edmontonians. Yeah, well, what are some of the projects that you're working on right now that you're most excited about in that, in that regard? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm working, I'm teaching right mm-hmm. now at the University of Alberta, which I think is really important because we're working with all pre-service teachers. That means all of these teachers that are going to graduate from the U of A are, are taking the course that I'm teaching. And that is uh, Indigenous history, culture, worldview, or worldviews of Indigenous people, some things that they've never had. That is important for them as they go into uh, the public school system. And, uh, there's uh, about 60% of Indigenous people uh, live in urban centers today. They're not out in the First Nations. They're in our public school system. So now they'll be better armed. I hate using that word. Better equipped, maybe, sure. uh, yeah. to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to be able to, to recognize how they can better support an, an Indigenous student in the classroom. But it all comes down to a very basic thing, and that is treaty. What I am doing, because because of these treaty makers in my family, I've come to learn that treaty, treaty is a relationship. It's a relationship between nations. So when we made treaties, and another part of my family, I can I can follow through the Iroquois line that goes all the way back to the the Covenant chain in 1613, I think it is, uh, where one of my ancestors was the maker of that, and. Um, when you understand those concepts around treaty, you realize that if I'm a good treaty person, I have an obligation to provide education and to provide understanding and make the effort to develop relationships between perhaps these two worlds that don't fully understand each other. Because with the treaties, what they make very clear, when you really study the treaties very closely, they always talk about we will become like brothers and sisters. We will become like family. We will be chained together. Here's the covenant chain idea mm-hmm. by peace, friendship, and understanding. Right. And so that's foundationally the work that I do. Then then layered in with what my grandfather and my grandmother said to me about being responsible that way. Yeah. Uh, and understanding, I think, is, is the real key. Uh, like, I think that everybody, well, we are all treaty people living uh, mm-hmm. on Treaty 6 here. Mm-hmm. Um and actually spending the time to actually go maybe read the treaties, I think, yeah. is probably well, be something. I, <laughs> and they're not, they're, they are, uh, it's kind of funny when you go look at them, it's like lawyers really haven't changed the way that they write. <laughs> yeah, they have. Time. They it's, have. It's, a, it's a little, it's a little, uh, but it's important to, to take the time to to actually read the document. I think, I think you'd be better to read the commissioner's reports on the treaties to get a maybe a firsthand glance from their standpoint of what they actually promised. Because when they were making treaties, they actually brought rolls of treaties pre-made with blank spots on them. Right. Right. <laughs> so they save them the time, right? But the commissioners kept detailed reports about what it is they talked about. So when you look at the parchment, the original old parchment, it doesn't talk about the things that we had talked about and agreed to. It talks about surrendering land, and for that you get these things, like $5 a year. Uh, you know, you get some twine and some canvas, and, uh, you know, and the chief gets a, a bull and a cow and, uh, you know, an auger and a plow. And, but those, when we were making treaty, those were gifts respecting the relationship. That wasn't what we, we you know, we didn't surrender land because that was not in our lexicon. We didn't understand that concept because it was just foreign. But we knew that we had to share the space in order to avoid serious trouble, that mm-hmm. we had to become like relatives in order to live in peace. Yeah, uh, and then there was, um, I don't know if amendment is the right word, but uh, the medicine chest in education yep. was uh, added, I believe, to the 
Treaty Treaty Six, at least a, a little bit later. No, uh, or no. Education was always a primary thing. Okay. When you look at the treaties across Canada, it's always the, in, within the top uh, three or four. Okay. Requests from the indigenous people because a part of treaty making when we is that we want to exchange knowledge as well. We'll share our knowledge with you, and you and you will share your years. knowledge with us. Uh, so far within the education system, and this is my dissertation area, is that we haven't applied that treaty into education yet. So how do we then bring in our knowledge and share that within the curriculum and the teaching practices of our education systems today? So far, we've been taught only from the Western. Uh, worldview and, and, and knowledge traditions, you know, which isn't bad, but you're also missing something very important uh, through the indigenous context. Yeah. Uh, so moving uh, forward, um, how, how is that integrated uh, and how, how is that coming along? Like you yourself are teaching teachers, yeah, um, which exactly. sounds like a very important step to start that at you know the root of the educators in oh, the absolutely. system. Yeah. Um, so like in 10, 15 20 years. What, what are some of the things that you're kind of really excited about? Uh, well, when you look at treaty as a framework for relationship and how Canada then becomes what Canada can be, because there's so much potential in terms of the full application of treaty. It isn't just, you know, that we share the natural resources and so forth and so on, that we have these treaty rights. But, you know, like you said, we're all treaty people. You have treaty rights as well. And, uh, you know, you've been able to benefit from the bounty of what this, uh, what this country has um, has provided, but um, what we're, when you understand the concept of treaty as becoming a relationship, a kinship document rather or ceremony even, mm -hmm. that means that we become closer. That means that I have an obligation to stand up for you and to look after you when you are in serious need, not only as a government or as a nation to nation, but as a person to person. We have that obligation as well. What I see happening is that once we start to bring in indigenous knowledge, wisdom, uh, concepts of treaty, treaty making and relationships, Canada becomes transformed. It will be transformed because we're doing something totally different that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. That's where it's going. And the potential then, I believe, is tremendous. Right. Mm -hmm. And I guess uh, the next generation of folks, too, uh, coming up will be playing a major role in that as well. Oh, they will be. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit of, uh, about uh, the work that you're doing with your kids, with Hunter and Jacqueline? Well, yeah, the uh, the next generation. I mean, they certainly are uh, enthusiastic, and I think that's 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 um, that's not giving them enough credit. They're very creative in terms of uh, taking these notions of treaty, taking these notions of indigenous sovereignty and the application of that in a contemporary context and creating opportunities for people to, to come and learn, working with, with Hunter and delivering um, the Tatawao sessions. Yes. And that was a part of our treaty obligation, is let's go and sit and circle with organizations and people and talk about, you know, indigenous worldviews, the spirit and nature of, of, of what treaties mean. And Tatawao is one of those principles. It means... Um, it means welcome, there is room, right? So the circle, in the circle, there is always room for people to join us. We always have enough. So it comes from a mentality um, or, or a perspective of abundance and not scarcity. And our society is, is really looks at a lot of things through the scarcity lens or the deficiency lens. Right. You know, and that's no way to start a relationship. We've got to say, you know what, there's a lot to go around. Let's sit down and, you know. 
and, and, and decide what we're going to do next. <laughs> I find that to be very positive, actually. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you. A warm thanks to Lewis for sharing his story with us. He'll be speaking at the Northwest College's Circle of Knowledge Indigenous Speaker Series on November 16th from noon until 1 p.m. The event is free, and that makes it a really great way to spend a lunch hour. We'll have the link in our show notes for more information. And how about you tell us what's next, Charlene? Sure, Andrew. The Social Enterprise Fund, or SEF for short, lends money to enterprises and organizations that work to make a positive impact in their communities. An initiative of the City of Edmonton and the Edmonton Community Foundation, over the past 10 years, it has invested over $35 million in more than 65 projects. That's crazy. I didn't know that it was that high. That's really impressive. And some of those uh, projects have included the White Mud Equine Learning Center Association, uh, which we highlighted back in episode 15, so uh, go check that out. They also provided financing for CKUA Radio's new headquarters downtown and operating capital for the Center for Race and Culture, and a lot more. Elizabeth sat down with Jane Bisbee. Hi, I'm Jane Bisbee, and I'm the Executive Director of the Social Enterprise Fund. To find out more about how the Social Enterprise Fund has impacted the community over the last decade. So thank you for being with us. So for those who haven't heard of SAF, what is the Social Enterprise Fund? I think my favorite description of it is that we're a friendly bank. So we make loans and investments into organizations that have a social purpose mission at their core, which is a fancy way of saying that they do good in community. Well, this is your 10th anniversary. Mm -hmm. um, why was SEF set up originally? I think it came first out of some ideas that the social workers inside the city of Edmonton had about how they might adapt social finance and impact investing operations and the, the kind of work that was being done around social enterprise in Britain. They, they started to look at um, those models and thought it could solve some uh, problems here, could be a solution for some of the really challenging problems you have in social work, in new environmental uh, activities, nonprofit financing, all of that kind of thing. So they had the first conversations. And because Edmonton's the kind of town it is, there's lots of collaboration that goes on. And they started working with Martin Garber Conrad, who was the CEO here at the Community Foundation at that point, still is now. But he started working with them because he had worked with a not-for-profit organization and knew how challenging it could be to get financing. Plain old everyday banking instruments that, you know, small business would think nothing of going to the bank and getting a line of credit. It can be really challenging for a nonprofit to do that or for any any small company that's working in an area that is maybe on the edges of uh, old-fashioned business, so new solutions around environmental causes, for example, those sorts of things that a bank would feel a little nervous about getting involved with. Are there things that you take into consideration that a bank may not take into consideration? Absolutely. Well, let's talk about what makes a social purpose business and why, we, why we're interested in that. We're looking for mission and we're looking for intent inside of business. We want an organization that has got a different bottom line than just making profit. Now, anybody who's ever run any kind of organization, nonprofit, for-profit, they will tell you 
that rule number one is that you have to have more income than outgo or you don't get to play. It always has to happen that way. And so you have to be businesslike. And we want all kinds of organizations to be businesslike and to actually capture enough revenue to be able to cover their expenses wherever that revenue might come from. What we're looking for is an organization and an enterprise that has a mission at its core, that's looking to do business differently. More than just profit, they're looking to change something about community, something about the world. And that can even be as important as how you treat your own employees. You've heard a lot of talk recently about paying minimum wage. Well, minimum wage is not even a living wage in Edmonton and Calgary. Living wage in Edmonton is about $16.75, something like that. Calgary, it's just over $18 an hour. So we're looking for companies that have said, yes, we're going to make the commitment to actually paying people what they're worth. And none of this business about, well, if you are being good and you have a social mission and you're accomplishing something in community, you should feel good about that. And that should be your compensation. I'm looking for more than that. I'm looking for companies that understand that it's all a package together and that you do good internally, you do good in community, and that it's a valid business model and that it actually works. And if we can move society more towards that, we'll have a more equitable kind of community to be able to live in. Um, so we're looking, we're expecting a little more out of our company. Some, some listeners might be familiar with B corporations, benefit corporations. It's a system and an organization that has said to companies, if you want to be better than a better business bureau company, become a benefits corporation. And they put them through a test about how they treat the environment, how they treat their own employees, what they do in community, what their um, sourcing practices are for uh, materials that they use. All of that kind of thing goes into deciding whether you're a social purpose business. And that's the kind of thing that we're really looking for and that we're looking to work with. The numbers have got to be there. You've got to be able to break even because there's no point in me lending you money if you're never going to be able to pay it back. That just, well, I could wreck a, an organization, and that's the last thing that you want to do. So it's, it's a matter of finding that higher purpose, but also one that knows how to balance the books. There are other people besides um, the organizations that are benefiting from this because... Oh, sure. The, the people that work with them benefit from them as well. Or even those of us who enjoy what they do. We have, for example, uh, cultural organizations that we've worked with. So every audience of every uh, theater production inside of the Varscona is benefiting from a loan that we were able to give them to help them do the renovations for that building. Some organizations have used us for affordable housing to build or to purchase apartments that then become Residences, for example, the Canadian Mental Health Association here in Edmonton got a mortgage from us to buy a small apartment building, which they use for supportive housing for some of their clients. So a whole range of different things that we get involved in. So there's there's people who benefit at all different kinds of levels. Really, Edmonton is benefiting, but it's not just Edmonton. No, that's you true. You loan outside of Edmonton, correct? Yes, we do. Yeah. We lend across the province. I joke that it's because I got tired of saying no 
um, because there's the same needs outside of the city of Edmonton. And um, luckily, the Community Foundation, who is a major, our major uh, source of capital to invest, saw the wisdom of actually doing that, that there were some things we could do that would have a bigger effect on the rest of the province, as well as it kind of balances out the risk across the portfolio, which is something that we have to think about too. You mentioned the Community Foundation. Where does the funding come from? Is there sure. is there interest? What What's happening yeah. with the money? The first money that came to us was about just over a million dollars from the city of Edmonton. The United Way put some cash into our capital pool, as did some private individuals, but far and away the largest proportion of our financing comes from money that the Community Foundation puts at our disposal to invest on their behalf in this kind of mission investing. Back in 2010, there was a a challenge put out from a federal task force to foundations across the country by 2020 to have placed at least 10% of their endowments in social finance, in impact investing. And so the Edmonton Community Foundation actually was the first to take up the challenge and said right away in June of 2011, said, yes, we will put our whole 10% up. And so that is where the majority of our financing has come from. And so, so far, we've invested all together in the last 10 years about $35 million in over 65 projects now. And what happens is the money keeps getting paid back. Like remember that one point two million that the city put in? We've now made five million dollars worth of loans out of that. So you can just keep cleaning the money up and sending it out to play as it gets paid back. The, these clients, even though a traditional bank might be nervous about them, I've found are quite determined that they are going to meet their obligations and that they're going to pay back. In fact, they do it early. Um, we had a client recently that had a 10-year term and after three years showed up at my door with the rest of the money saying, we've been able to do this because you gave us that loan. Uh, it stabilized us. We're in much better position and we know that now you'll take this and loan it to somebody else. And so they take that obligation to pay back really seriously. We do charge interest. So we charge um, a reasonable interest rate that pays for our expenses and gives a little bit of return, which then goes back into the investment pool as well. So after 10 years, can you share a success story that you found that sticks out for you? Okay, now you're asking me to pick amongst my children, and I don't, <laughs> I don't like to pick which is my favorite pick child. the first, maybe. Who knows? Or the first paid back. The first paid back. Well, the first paid back was CKWA. We were part of the initial purchase money for the new CKUA building and were, in fact, the smallest parcel. But we were able to kind of, with that $1.5 million loan on a $14 million project, able to say, okay, we're in. Where are the rest of you? And that brought other partners to the table so that the whole financing package could go together. And they came to us Shortly after they were in operation up in that building, I think about a year, maybe a year and a half, they paid us out completely and were able to refinance. So because that by that time, they looked like a good, solid operation. Everybody can see that this is going on. And sometimes that's all it takes is that demonstration that, yes, you can do this. 
So that's that's one that's our one of our earliest payback early stories. Do you see a lot of loans that come into you or, or organizations that come into you and they're not ready? They're just Oh yeah. You send them back and say Yeah. Some people I get the question I get is how long will this take for you to give us an answer because a lot of groups that have applied to grants are used to a set time frame and are also used to be just told no. I've worked for as long as 2 years with some organizations because we you know if you can see a glimmer of something there and they do want to make it happen I am willing to ask the questions to try to get to the answers. That's part of what the process is I have to do anyway. I have to know as much about it as they do. But you never know um, when your patience will actually pay off. So it's a learning experience for them. Oh, yeah. And for me, too, all the time. So being this is your 10th year anniversary, where do you see Seth going? What's next? <laughs> well, that's a good question for the people who started it. I'm, I'm hoping that some of the things we'll be able to talk about in the next few months just to show what's happened um, and, and really tell our stories will elicit a conversation about that because this is an incredible tool that's been created. And how do we want to use that? How, what do we want to change? What do we want to, where do we want to focus to make community better? And that's, it's kind of an interesting place for the Community Foundation and our other founding partners to think about going forward. It's kind of a now what? And I'm really interested to see what the answer to that will be. Thanks so much to Jane Bisbee for telling us all about the Social Enterprise Fund. If you'd like to learn more about SCF and see the many initiatives they've invested in, you can visit socialenterprisefund.ca. Edmonton Community Foundation has the privilege of working with some very generous donors who create endowment funds that help support a wide variety of charities throughout Edmonton. We are happy to introduce you to our colleague, Craig Sumphallen. I'm Craig Sumphallen. I'm the Director of Grants at the Edmonton Community Foundation. My husband and I started the Edmonton and Bloom Fund about 10 years ago, and that fund is related to the goals of the Communities in Bloom program. My husband's been volunteering with that program for years, and he felt that it was important to give back to that program. So it supports projects related to horticulture or naturalization or public art or other projects like that. Last year, we started another fund in our names to support the kinds of projects that we give to annually. When that fund emerges, um, meaning that it reaches $10,000 and can start granting, it will support projects related to arts and culture, to animal shelters or homeless animals. I believe in the work of the foundation and the work that we do with the long-term vision. So these funds were a good mechanism for me to support that. Also, working in the charitable community, I recognize the problems with funding mechanisms that go up and down with economic cycles. And endowments are a great way to provide a steady flow of funding out to the charitable community. So these funds are ways that we can support the kinds of things that we care about both now and long after we're gone. I think that something a lot of people don't anticipate is how much fun it is to make decisions about where your fund will grant. Once you've created the fund and it is continuing to provide support, you 
sort of get to play Santa. You're making decisions about the kinds of organizations you think are important and are doing great work. Thanks to Craig for telling us more about the Edmonton and Bloom Fund that he and his husband created to support this program. If you'd like to find out more about Edmonton and Bloom, we'll be sure to have the link in our show notes. Every month, we'd like to give a shout out to another one of the excellent podcasts from the Alberta Podcast Network. I'm going to turn it over to Lisa Pruden, our producer now, to chat about the one that we have on deck this episode. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. There is a new podcast I've been listening to. Well, newish. It's called Municipally Speaking, and it's hosted by Troy Pavlik and Mac Mail. It is a presentation of Taproot Edmonton. On this podcast, Trevor and Mac have weekly discussions about the goings-on of Edmonton City Council, and they don't hold any punches when it comes to sharing their opinions. This is one of those podcasts that gets me talking back at my speakers or pausing to do a quick Google search. So if you want to stay in the loop for what the city of Edmonton is up to, give this podcast a shot. You can find Municipally Speaking on the Alberta Podcast Network, on the CKUA radio app, or wherever else you like to listen to your podcasts. We'll also have a link to the show in our notes. We're nearing the end of our show, which means... It's news time. (laughs) That's right. And this uh, is a really short one, actually, with just one grant deadline to share. So Edmonton Community Foundation's community grants are for registered charities in the greater Edmonton area and can be up to $40,000. Applications are due December 1st, and you can find more details at ecfoundation.org. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks to all of our guests for sharing their stories with us. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please share this episode with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. Leaving a review is a big help, and we always appreciate your feedback. Thanks for hanging out with us today. We've been your hosts, Charlene Clark. And Andrew Paul. Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.